Welcome to African Film. African film lovers and cinematic explorers, welcome to another episode of the African Film Podcast. Now, if this is your first time hearing about us, welcome. This is a space where we explore the African film industry through the eyes of its practitioners. Today, we're going to be exploring the world of commissioning, editing, and the streaming landscape through a practitioner currently navigating that space. In Zoom with me is a special guest who I had the privilege of starting my career in the film industry with when we're in the same Magic in Motion Academy eight years ago. This filmmaker and executive has had experience in both fiction and non-fiction, having produced multiple Zanti Magic films, as well as working on iconic shows like Carte Blanche. And the last six years have seen him cement his space within the world of broadcast programming commissioning editor as a junior CE within MultiChoice before moving into the streaming space with Evod where he currently resides as an executive producer. This is a man who is passionate about film and filmmaking and if you guys could see his background right now it is literally about six different decades of his favorite films. He goes by Mark Madai. My guy, how are you doing sir? I'm perfect my brother. That was an intro worthy of a freaking king man. Damn! I should have like some real music to play after that, brother. That was dope. <laughs> but yeah, I'm good, man. Thank you. How is this year treating you, sir? This year of our Lord's 2023. Ah, you know, hey, 2023 has come with a lot of positive kind of outlooks and a lot of shaky, scary scenarios. I mean, we're like in March and we've lost so many icons already on the cusp of their careers. And, you know, people who are greats at the same time, goats. But then, you know, we keep moving, right? We can't sit still. We have to mourn and then you have to keep moving. And I think that's just a testament of resilience of life. You know, like sometimes you just can't just like be hanging back and just waiting. You have to keep going, man. So I'm doing that. I'm pushing forward, even though there is some difficulties. But at the end of the day, I'm positive about the space I'm in. I'm positive about the industry, my life as well. I think there's a lot of change and it's been good personally. So I'm not complaining per se. That is very good to hear. I'm happy to hear that you are in a good space because, yeah, you know, post-pandemic life, it's a hit or miss for a lot of people. So it's good to hear that you are there. Now, with our podcast, we usually always start with the same question, which is, what is your favorite African film? Oh my gosh, this question I don't like because I have to choose one and I've got so many films that I've kind of been introduced to in the African space. I think one that definitely comes up to mind will be Four Corners coming from Cape Town. I think Four Corners was a movie that kind of stood out and I love the rawness of it. I think coming a little bit forward, I'm going to choose one that's a little bit more kind of recent for me was Beasts of a Nation with Idris Alba. I thought that was also quite intense in the sense of the rawness of how life can be for Africans and uh, taking it there without a shame and without kind of holding back. It's very brave for filmmakers as well. And I thought that was great. And uh, it kind of moved me in that sense. You said you were adding two. So what was the final one? So Four Corners and beasts of a nation beasts of no nation i really loved four corners i think it has one of our best child actor performances that we've put to screen at least on a south african perspective with the lead i think between him and the letter reader those are kind of some of my favorite child performances that we've captured i'm just blanking on the kid's name i believe his name was jezreel sky yes jezreel really gave quite the gripping performance in that and i think that's actually currently on Showmax. Do not put me on that, but if you go into our description box by the time this comes out, if it is on Showmax, it will be showing there. 
But now I'm interested with you, even though I think I kind of know the story, but for the audience, what got you interested in actually wanting to be in the film industry? Oh gosh, this question, it's a two-folded one, I think. Growing up in the township and having one household, one television, I mean, I grew up in Guguletu back, obviously, in the late 80s to the 90s. And cassette tapes used to be brought into the house by my mom, my aunts, some of my uncles, and you would watch whatever they're watching. So if it's like an all-aged or a little bit risque movie, that's what it is you know people will either excuse themselves but I think for me what stood out for me when I was a kid I used to always wait and see the credits and there were a lot of marks that were working whatever they were doing in the credits and I was like you know one day I'd love to see myself in the credits as a mark mark <laughs> there are a lot of marks yeah right that's true it was like Mark Ingram Mark who Mark there but then fast forward I got my undergrad and I worked at a human resources agency back in 2012 and um, it was a private institution and I really felt like I was dying man like the call for television was still there I always used to love watching television all the time it was always on in the household and I had to reassess my career at that point and I went back to studying I went to after and got my honors degree and yeah that's where it catapulted me to where I am now. Luckily, getting involved with obviously the Magic Emotion Academy, but yeah, we'll talk about that. But yeah, I think that's what the love of the industry did of television. It made me change my career path where it was like a really solidified and I had to really start all over. And yeah, I'm glad I made that decision. Speaking of the Magic in Motion Academy, that is actually where we met in 2015. Correct. It's eight years ago and it really doesn't feel like it was eight years ago, but it is a lifetime ago. So we were both part of that program, which for those of you who have not heard it, I think it was originally called the talent factory then it was yeah, called the magic yeah, yeah. in motion academy then it went back to being the talent factory but it's an accelerated program where they would take a number of graduates and introduce them into the film industry have them produce films have them go on different sets for us they called us the top 12 graduates in the country they really hyped us up because we were the first ones under the magic in motion banner with bobby heaney and if you want to know a little bit more about that the season finale of season one actually is with bobby heaney where we talk about both the magic and motion academy and all of its offshoots into the continent but i just wanted to understand from you with a academy which was as comprehensive as it was which was able to take us from you know being on set on shows like isibaya to actually being able to work on live sets from shows like idols and carte blanche all the way to what was the name of that reality show the couples one. Oh, power power is it uh Power couple, power, power couple. couple. Yeah, because I remember that was the first set that we went to. They flew us out to Cape Town yeah, yeah, and yeah. we were on Power Couple and we saw content producers, really content producing and making drama for those contestants. So I wanted to know in that type of vibrant and ever moving space where we got to in the space of one year get exposed to so much. How much impact did that program actually have on your career trajectory and how you wanted to position yourself? Because you were exposed to so much, both as a producer, you got to direct a bit and you were just all over the place. So what was that experience like for you and how has it impacted the way you decided to position yourself? Oh, wow, man. That experience till this day, I think was so valuable. You know, it's the platform you didn't know that you needed to step into the industry because once you're in it, you see how vast and how kind of connected it is as well. And also like it's almost like a family and you have to kind of sew in somewhere somehow in there because once you do you're within that family throughout your whole career in the industry for example we we started in 2015 i've bumped into people now who are looking at me like oh my god dog like you we were working together now i'm coming to you in a position where you you hold the keys in a way 
<laughs> you know, so yeah. It's very fascinating to see how the trajectory in the industry can take you. And uh, I think the Magic in Motion Academy having so many big production houses that we had access to helped us catapult whatever career choice that you wanted to take at the time. And it enabled you to hone that skill, ask the questions that you really needed to know about, and just become part of the process, you know, learning and taking all the knowledge in. And no other academy that I know of would give you that within the space of a year, like just jam-packed with top of the country producers. You know this. I mean, for example, even going to Cape Town Studios at one point and seeing the vastness of what they have there and how concepts come together from beginning middle and end you know that whole production life cycle and cycle going forward you know it was amazing and uh to this day i'll be always grateful i'm curious did you ever have an actual favorite placement between all the places that you kind of went to and if so what was it the first one the isidingo placement with ignatius Iggy. <laughs> i think yes. that was that was very cool because obviously it was my first telenovela kind of setup i even was able to be an ad assistant ad uh, on the floor so i really kind of got a nice perspective and then the second one would definitely be the Mzanzi Magic commissioning editor position where I did was chilling with you yeah it was it, it was me and you because I, I, I was like and, uh, and I remember we were sitting there and I gave a story is amazing and I mean we used to just go through scripts and watching the the movies that we were seeing some of those bioscope movies and then you'd go through even like the series pitches and then oh yes because people would always talk about like when you're getting to the industry that like for example that no idea is like really that original and then you're now sitting on the commissioning editor spot and you get 30 different different applications and you find like five are literally not exact same like corner to corner but the essence of them and you're like exactly. actually yeah it's not that every idea is like unique but a lot of the time people have the exact same idea at the same time or they're putting in the same content because they're in the same ether and you're like you see things from a completely different perspective and actually I think for me the commissioning editor placement was one of my favorites as well as just Isibaya because that was when I actually got to write and True. I'm a writer at heart. So it was that, but being at multi-choice and doing the commissioning editor thing and just having a quick glimpse of that side really also just changed how I looked at things and how I wanted to move into the industry, not just as a film practitioner, but how I wanted to build my company or whatever it is on a larger scale, because now we were dealing with things. Well, we weren't dealing with things on a larger scale, but we could see the large scale every day you're there just going through different great pictures from big production companies great pictures from small production companies crap crap ones <laughs> from all sides of the realm it's not like everything that came at you was fantastic but you got to see like real passion and like different ways that people went about formatting and Word. it's very clear that for you that really kind of pivoted you, I believe, into the commissioning space. So let's actually now get properly into commissioning. I want to understand from your vantage point, how do you actually see the role of a commissioning editor within the South African perspective? So you really like did the research here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I mean, commissioning editor and my current role as an executive producer, I think it's the same thing, right? It's just the different, that's how they label it in different broadcasters. And I think I've been able to see the shift between one broadcaster and the other broadcaster, two broadcasters essentially I've worked for now. And the main thing, the thing, and the distinctive thing that sticks out is that you are a custodian of the content and you almost kind of, I don't want to say gatekeeper, but you are an individual that has a very unique position in establishing 
a relationship of the content that's out there and what you think the broadcaster should be showing at the same time. So the broadcaster has their audience, their people that they always have to service, but then the content needs to speak to that. So as me, myself, I am the person who looks out for that and making sure that I know what I feel is popping. I feel like this is the next hot topic. And it's also relatable stories, man. Like people need to see themselves on the screens I know it's kind of cliche, but it really works. We don't want to confuse the audience too much with foreign concepts, concepts they don't understand. But it's me making sure that the production house doesn't get too far ahead. Because, like, you know, creatives can really get into some holes, man. And it's like the guy's stuck there and he doesn't want to come out. Or gal. <laughs> so it's my job to make sure that we reach a compromise. We, we make sure that the content speaks to what the broadcaster wants for their audience because the broadcaster knows their audience and there's no two ways about that. So in terms of the broadcaster knowing their audience, because I think this is something which kind of always seems like very foreign because like, how do you know your audience? What are the data sets which really inform the decisions that broadcasters make about their content? Because I also remember like, I'm not sure if you remember, but when we got into the academy, one of the things that we were told even like about stuff like Mzanti Magic was that a seven-year-old and a gogo need to be able to watch it. They don't need to be fully engrossed by it, but it must be in a way that they neither of the two would be able to switch off but still be engaged within that content because it's family setting. But what are those things which actually, from your standpoint, now that you've really sat within that space, what are the data sets that really inform what a channel's positioning or a brand positioning is in terms of when they say this is our audience and this is who we're speaking to what are the things which kind of really inform that type of conversation from your experience as a producer coming to a broadcaster and you have a hot content i think you hardly have hot content to to write or to to produce i think the main question you should ask yourself is who is this for and when i say that you kind of break it down in, in let's say for example age groups or even demographic who are you targeting this for you can have a hot concept but then the positioning is wrong so for example the world that you're setting it in could be incorrect it could be better if we bring it down to a lower lsm it's more relatable the audiences in that bracket can kind of relate to that type of story. So I think when you come to a broadcaster with a concept, be ready to kind of let go of some of those creative juices that made you tick on it. Be ready. I mean, it's not, it doesn't necessarily always happen all the time, but there's always a compromise, especially if channel is going to be commissioning your content. If you want channel to be giving you money and this money to shoot this. So there's going to be, have to be some kind of compromise because at the end of the day, there's a service. And if the audiences are not coming to those seats and putting on that television, those numbers are going to show. And it's something we're probably going to talk later about where content is going. At the end of the day, it needs to make numbers. Let's break it down in terms of the telenovelas, the dailies that we have on television. It's a very wild kind of space in the sense of if you don't attract a certain audience, you lose them. And then that's a whole share price gone. And I was at a conference this past week in Cape Town where, where there was obviously all our leaders and executives were sitting down and were analyzing all these numbers. And it's looking scary, man, currently where we're going. But I think it also informs the content because you can do so much when you market something, you put it out there, you put all those posters, but then will it keep people engaged? 
will people sit down and want to watch the content? Whether if it's video on demand, whether it's appointment viewing, we have to always think about that as well. But it's very important to think about who do you want your content to go to? Who is your audience? And will it speak to them? Also, just in case there are very, very green people, I actually think we should break down just a few concepts. I think the first would actually just be commissioning and what that means. So for people who may be hearing about like commission for the first time, a commission is essentially when you as an artist go to a broadcaster or to a specific client, it's either you go to them or they have put out a brief saying, this is what we want. We want a television series that is 13 parts we want a painting that is this 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 that and we're going to put a budget of this much to pay for the production of that specific element and your job is to then take whatever idea that has been either created by you or put forth by them in terms of what the brief it is that they wanted to fulfill that idea and once you have fulfilled that idea that commission whatever that product is then belongs to the person who commissioned it because they gave the full financial output to make those resources happen. And that is a very key part of how a lot of South African television is made. A lot of South African films are made. Around 2018, the, the statistics weren't hard and fast, but it was a known fact that about over 90% of South African film and television content is very much coming from a commission perspective. Sorry, sorry to cut you, sorry to cut you, I think it's very important, the stat that you're stating now in the sense that it's the majority of how content is made in the country because it is the most profitable as well in terms of versus licensing, for example, in the country. So when you say it's the most profitable, can you go into how it is the most profitable? For example, you can build your company of commissions and then have one or two licensing, but your bulk, for example, if you get a telenovela for the year, you get a commission. That's you shooting that telenovela for the year, meaning that you're going to be paid for that entire year, a couple of million rand. And then that obviously gets broken down into segments where each payment is made accordingly. For production house that can be sustainable like that each year, maybe like so you get three years, three seasons of a show, that can be profitable for you. Let me put it that way, in the long run, it can be profitable. And then that's where the base of a majority of the companies have started. Ferguson's Films was like that. We're looking at Black Brain was like that. Seretti got into into it like that. The companies that couldn't really break into the long format telenovela space, commissioning space, it's hard to sustain yourself because when you're making one or two movies, let's say four movies a year, you'd be lucky maybe six or seven under 10. It, it's not going to really make business sense unless you're getting at a time four. You get commissioned four films in one go. That's, for example, back in the days at Mzansi, a, a movie was going for 450000 per movie. So that makes a little bit more economical sense than one or two at a split time. That's how I see it in terms of the profitability of it. Commissioning space is definitely better than the licensing space. Well, I think from that perspective, it's speaking about it also more from even as a production company in the sense of a production company, if you are in business producing the whole year, you're able to even negotiate things a lot more leanly because you trying to rent a camera or you renting out a camera for a week is a completely different than, for example, you renting it out for a month or for a longer term because even maintenance costs actually uh for the the shorter you tend to rent something the more expensive it becomes for you so i think from a production perspective and a company perspective if your role is really to just churn productions i do understand 
the profitability of it and how that works, especially in a telenovela space, because that is essentially your core function is to continuously have your crew working and being in that type of space. Now, there's something which you had mentioned earlier in terms of your share percentage, which is something which when you're looking at ratings, you then kind of see what it means in terms of like when something has a 21% share of audience. What is the actual significance of that for a production company to know as well as for a channel to understand where it is they fit on the market and where a specific piece of content, the relevance and resonance of a piece of content works when you're talking about now the share percentage? We'd only tell them if it's bad. If it's bad and this is why we think it's going bad, (laughs) (laughs) the show is tanking, bro. It's going down. It's either doing good or it's doing bad. So you want to look at the numbers. We, on the other hand, do deep dive sections. So there's a whole department, a research department that does deep dive investigations to either why the show is doing well or the show is doing bad. So that will inform essentially why our audience is moving away. For example, we launched the show, we were capping at 10 TVRs. Now we are sitting at 6.9, 7s, sometimes fives, what's happening? Obviously, we look at the whole kind of landscape. There's obviously load shedding that's affecting people's TV times. There is people having options to watch content now even more. There are more than one screens to use. I mean, there's cell phones, iPads, there's television screens. Yeah, so what I was asking is when you're saying from 10 to 6.9 TVRs, what is that actual measurement scale referring to when someone's trying to understand when they see that? What does it actually mean? When we lose rating, what those ratings numbers actually represent for people to better understand because that is very much the business of television in terms of how even the price of ads can be put onto a show is based upon the tvr the type of viewers who are actually watching that so when you're negotiating those things it's just to understand what those things actually mean they put it in quite a acute perspective in the workshop or the conference i was at last week in the sense that they said one percentage loss broken down can equate to 1.5 million loss in revenue so that means now taking all into account ad space people who are wanting to promote on that space because of that content if the ratings are not high enough you've lost all the potential ad revenue space that you could have made on that specific channel or at that specific time when you're now speaking about tvrs those are the different types of mechanics that you're yes, that you're yes. referring to. so the business will always always look at that and in a sense if the content is not speaking to high ratings or we're losing ratings then they, they want to know why it's there they want to take it off so because at the end of the day it's it's revenue money is being lost each and every week with the percentage not going because now let's say there's a big pie of at 6 30 there's content that's playing at 6 30 that's the pie for 6 30 there's different channels that are playing content if your share is poor let's say 20 percent of that pie when it goes down you are losing obviously the audience that you're supposed to be holding there and then if they're not coming back you know your story has obviously trajectories there's moments of peak there's moments of being plateauing and then there's no because that's how story kind of flows if they're not coming back and then keeping that share that they're supposed to be having there's a big problem businesses will come in and say that yeah the audiences are not working out here why is it content is it the advertising for the show what is it I hope that kind of answers you a bit. Yeah, no, no. I think it gives a clear understanding of when you're now talking about when something goes from a 10 to a 6.9, the brevity of what that actually means for a channel, for a commissioning editor, 
because then that also kind of means if you see that for yourself, because those ratings sometimes are released when by your mock lives, your TV essays, not in as great detail as you guys get them, but in good enough detail that you get like a high level understanding of what's going on. So for you now as a CE, we know in specific spaces, CEs tend to be looked at as quite villainous because... (laughs) You are the first person I'm saying tends to be. I am not saying you're looked at as quite villainous because I also understand very much that you are, as you very much put it, you're playing a unique space in terms of trying to deal with, you are the face of, um, for a lot of production companies, the channel, but at the same time, you have to still work with the channel and all the heads and make sure that everything is kind of running smoothly. So you're very much this production manager, this executive, as you already put it. So now that you transitioned from being a filmmaker to a commissioning editor, what are some of the biggest misconceptions around commissioning editing that you feel currently exist? Wow. Yeah, they, they are endless. <laughs> yeah, there's one. I think the first one that sticks to mind is that we are failed directors and producers that couldn't make it to the floor. So now you are making decisions, weird, stupid decisions, because now you're on the other side when you're talking to the creatives, right? And then the other one is we are white-collar office individuals who don't understand what happens in the industry or essentially on set. We're too prim and proper with the top, man. And I think for me, what's happened now is that I see a lot of which I love. I, I love seeing guys who have been in the industry, and I mean industry from even the ground up, you know, something where you've worked and you understand the hustle, the grind that these guys who come with these stories go through. And I think it just gives a holistic perspective. You're able to kind of bring yourself down. And I think it also helps with maybe fine tuning when you hear a story. You understand, maybe you're not understanding the person from a high level, but if you were a person that were on the ground and you you saw the the struggles or you know the hardships that people go through you you sympathize and you understand that's more of a an experience skill to have in the position that I am now because then it opens up my eyes a little bit more since you started as a filmmaker you're able to empathize with specific things which means you might be able to communicate your position a little bit better understanding the position of correct, a filmmaker correct correct or of a production company. I think even when we came into the industry, that was very much the first one that you had mentioned, the failed directors and failed producers of which, I don't know, some of the commissioning editors that I met even when we were there didn't read off that way. Mm-hmm. Just, I think sometimes you may have a bad commissioning editor the same way you can have a bad director and you can have a bad I think almost any type of job because a job is totally. a job. But I think sometimes the the really bad experiences then taint the process for the, the wider spectrum of what that job is or the value of what that job actually entails, which is why I think looking at those misconceptions and also just seeing the scope of what it is that you're actually dealing with can hopefully ground the perspective of what a commissioning editor and or channel executive is fighting for when they're making decisions about story, as you've already just spoken about with the TVRs and all of that. So now with all of this context that we have now put in, what to you would be an actual ideal relationship between a commissioning editor, a production company, and the servicing channel? Sure. I think, and I heard this the other day, I think it's having an innovative, creative, 
and manufacturing hub that does everything in one. So, I mean, for example, at Universal Studios, <laughs> like everything is done in-house. We've got the story conceptualizes coming in. It's almost like a big conveyor belt in one place. So some models have tried that. And for example, you think about the talent factory. I think talent factory has something similar or they wanted to kind of base that and then, you know, keep the content in-house. But then obviously it's got its limitations as any kind of model in the sense of keeping it in-house because then you're limiting the creativity, you're limiting the freshness, the newness of perspective, which is why it's important to have external producers. But in an ideal deal world, I think there would be an revolving kind of door type situation, but everything is done in-house. And this is, I mean, from conceptualizing to shooting, to distributing, to broadcasting and yeah, all in one. So when you're saying conceptualizing, you're now talking about, for example, the servicing channel being in relationship with showrunners and or script writers from this yeah i think that's what i'm trying to understand the when you say from beginning to end how that currently differs outwardly from what we have now in terms of when a production company comes in with that concept to then take it through is it more so than you're dealing with individuals at the front end of the conception of the idea so just to unpack that model that you're talking about in terms of your ideal model just a little bit more when you're saying the universal model just so we have a more complex understanding you know for example keeping people in a retainer basis that conceptualizes for example so that you are constantly oh, okay got having it, got it, got it. a okay, stream so, yeah. of content which essentially starts in-house you know everything is happening in-house so i think it will eliminate a lot of things man because when we have a lot of parties that are external and then you know we are bound by a contract there's a lot of kind of cracks that can happen loopholes and teething problems obviously naturally that that happen but the relationship will always not flow as it should unless you are working with a production house and we, we've seen this all the time on a continuous basis. And then you get audiences and the rest of the industry crying about why we are always using the same producers, why we are always recycling these guys to shoot these things, because they are able to shoot and, you know, manage the processes of delivery, manage the processes of choosing properly. Like there's, there's a bigger value chain in this, right? And I think the broadcaster will always try find the simplest way to get the TV to the to to the screens, and if it's a production house that has hit all those nails on the head constantly, there's no issues. Why wouldn't they gravitate to the people that do it properly? Fine, they should always be opening the industry up. That's key to growing our industry. That's that's very important. But at the same time, you need to be able to have a constant flow, a constant kind of comfortability with the content that you're generating. I mean, if a model like that could then just eliminate the section of having to look for that person, we can do it in-house and, you know, keep it in-house. I don't know how realistic it is, but I think it would be something that could work, man. So correct me if I'm wrong then. So is what you're saying more so like even, for example, like a slate system where you say, for example, you will hire in-house, you will have these writers who will have like an eight picture even slate for the next three or four years to be able to then build out different concepts. Since those are now in-house working for the channel, they can then expound to the other production companies. So you're streamlining that process, knowing where exactly where it's coming 
coming from the same way we kind of know for example that Quinta Brunson is at Warner Brothers mm. that um Shonda Rhimes mm. is at Netflix mm. that is that is that mm. where you're that's that that that's it right there I think you simplified it so nicely for me in the sense that it will eliminate so much of the red tape and the back and forth if we can just have a proper slate of okay guys this is what's going to happen these are the 10 films whatever 10 dramas that we're going to be doing and we're going to distribute them like this these are the production houses everything is done according and it's also then obviously eliminates the external post because now post can be done in-house which is also a very very large percentage of production in this country and for the broadcaster but funny enough i think multi-choice does have a similar model to this especially with the post-production where they do post internally but the problem is it's always the capacity as capacity on how much they're turning out right and how much is the demand for on screen so it can happen that way too with all of that now that we have an understanding of the way that it currently works and what you'd want it to look like because i think now i'm understanding more of where your headspace is how does the current african film landscape currently look like to you from a ce perspective we're gonna start getting content that speaks to all of us in the continent right i was at the royal soapy awards two weeks ago and they said the following awards are going to include categories from african filmmakers and that was quite fascinating for me because now as a south african and working in the south african television space there's not a lot of south africans consuming african content versus how much other african countries are consuming our content and dubbing it to suit their language for example and i found that quite fascinating and i think it's probably the direction where industry is trying to go we're seeing it a lot of on our international platforms like netflix with the african releases some south african releases are also feeling like okay this doesn't South African actor, yes, African language a little bit, but you're giving me a little bit of a cross-continental feel here. You know, there's there's a lot of, I feel like, you know, there could be Nigeria here, there's a little bit of Cameroon here, there's a little bit of everything. And I think slowly but surely, that's where the, the landscape is going with content in, in Africa. So kind of like even if we were to take Queen Sona, Queen Sona, I think very much was very loud. And I'm using the word loud, not in a bad way. It was very apparent about how much it wanted to showcase the African landscape in terms of also just starting here. Next thing we're in Zanzibar. Next thing we're here having multiple characters from different places representing things. I think the first central battle was very much centered in Congo. For those of you who don't know, I am very much a Queen Sono apologist. I loved that show. I do not know why it got the level of hate that it did when it first came out. Those of you who really loathed it, we can have a conversation about it. I just want to understand because I feel like it was a tad... It's not to say that it was a perfect show, but I feel like the show that it was and the amount of criticism it got did not match for me personally. That's quite interesting, you know, in the sense that I think I would love to also find out how the other African countries viewed the show. I really would think they would have loved it. Because for me... There were some accent issues, but by the time we got to like episode, episode four, episode five, episode six, you were literally like, I have never experienced that type of wonderlust in terms of seeing Africa with African yeah. characters. And I do agree. I would have loved to see or to better understand how other African countries maybe had experienced something like Queen Sono, which was very much trying to be comprehensive and not being as much as 
the characters were based in South Africa, since it was a spy movie and it's about espionage, you, you're really allowed to then travel a lot and have these characters be in different places and locales and doing very, very cool and fantastical things. But yes, that is my bid for Queen Sono to just kind of say, look, I don't think the hate of God was justified, was fully justified in terms of the depth of it. But yeah, so you're seeing things going more in that direction of it being more continental in the approach and in the language and all those things. It's going to be very tricky, man, because I look at it from a South African's perspective and how much South Africans are willing to want to watch other kind of African cultures within theirs. I mean, because obviously they live within it. The South African knows very well the African brothers. They live with us. So, I mean, the content should essentially emulate that going forward because we're opening the whole continent. The whole country, right, is open. So I think the content will get there. It's going to take time. But currently, I think then we need to... <laughs> I'd love to probably see like the top Nigerian soapies or Kenyan soapies dubbed in Zulu or like, I don't know, Tswana Tosa and see how that works out. Yeah, that would be interesting because already started. We already have seen the inverse of that with your Gomorrahs and your Rivers having been not even dubbed, being flat out redone mm-hmm. into Kenyan. And I think I know for a fact Gomorrah has been redone into Kenyan telenovela. I think it's called. I don't know because I saw my dad watching, oh, yeah? it, and when I saw my dad watching the telenovela, I was like, "No, this is Gomorrah. <laughs> like all the characters, the stories is exactly yeah, yeah, the same." Yeah, yeah. The only difference is with Gomorrah here, Gomorrah is very much middle, lower middle class. But the Kenyan version, the characters were very much now a middle to upper middle class class in terms of the central family, the the teacher with the social worker. That central family moved up instead of being lower to middle class in the township. They were very much outside of the township in the suburbs as a... Kind of like a Belair type of family. That was the main difference that I'd noted between the two. I think it's called Salem, the Kenyan version. So, but now with you having moved from multi-choice where you were primarily doing terrestrial broadcast work to now E, where you're now very much, I think, stationed within EVOD, has anything changed for you in the way that since you've now even spoken about your TVRs and all those things, has anything fundamentally changed for you as a CE in how you look at content or, or how you kind of judge the progress of content and the making and the risk that you're willing to take and risk, risk that you're willing to not mitigate having moved from a more traditional broadcasting space to something more streaming based? Evod is only a year old, right? It's the baby amongst the the on-demand streaming platforms out there. But they offer a very unique service. They're catering to the lower LSM, which is obviously the working class, poorer to working class kind of LSM. That's definitely their A target. And obviously, it's more cost effective. So it's giving them an option to feel like I'm within this whole streaming maze, but I don't want to get too lost. For example... Imagine having in the township uh, an old lady trying to navigate herself through a Netflix. I I would think she would be lost in there. Someone who's middle income to low income household is an old lady because our audiences are always female stewed. We must always remember that. And putting an EVOD next to it, I would think an EVOD would be a little bit more accessible because first and foremost, there's not a big library to choose from, but the local stock of content and we have a lot of old uh, legacy stuff is there. 
but then the new stuff that's coming up is very on the on the on the pulse or on the cusp of what's happening on that LSM, which is I think very appealing. But the platform is like you say growing, but th- that means we're allowed to take risks. We want to be able to see what works at the same time because now it's also changing. We've got we've got our lower LSM, but then we've also got a lot of white, middle to upper class, and colored Indian same 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 kind of bracket. So. They also want to be experiencing uh, uh, content in their languages, in their kind of themes and worlds. So that gives us an opportunity to test a lot of different genres, which we want to go into different kind of spaces that usually not go to on a, on a, on a linear television kind of space. So that's very exciting to kind of wait for. And I think going into 2023, 2024 is going to be very, very exciting stuff happening there. Well, I can only speak as a somewhat consumer. My favorite South African fictional film of last year was an EVOD film in The Umbrella Man, but also the one which was, I think, most creatively ambitious in terms of the amount of risks, I think, to a point where it was slightly overstuffed. And I actually have spoken about this in another episode was Jereza, because that one really tried something. I didn't know that we were going to try as soon as we did, which was very much the cryptocurrency type of sci-fi type of very Guy Ritchie-esque, very, very Guy Ritchie-esque type of storytelling and that type of stuff. So you have those types of content with your your Jerezes. You have The Umbrella Man, which is very much a heist film, but a heist film that is like embedded in Cape Town and colored culture, where you can both see it as the one thing, which is this heist film of this man trying to really save his dad's is it his dad? The jazz shop, yeah. Yes, where, where you have the heist element, which is very blockbustery, but you have the family element. And on top of that, you have the cultural element, which I think is really why it was my favorite film, my favorite local film of Lasha, because it just felt very comfortable, but at the same time, very big in a way that you got to experience a film and a cinema level film that felt grounded in South African culture in a way that I really hope we kind of get to peter out a lot more going forth in terms of taking genred films and how we take those genred films and then really imbue culture into it moving forward. I think Umbrella Man really was refreshing for me in that aspect. It also stems from the bravery of the platform itself, including the channel, in the sense of wanting to take those types of risks. Because even myself, I, I have never seen Cape Town filmed like that. And when I say Cape Town in its in entirety, you know, it's not just a section of Cape Town. It's it, it was the whole of Cape Town. And it, it, it gave me this kind of, they peeled almost like another layer off. Like they peeled off the glass and they just like showed another gritty side of Cape Town, which was really, really amazing. And the way it translated on screen, I think John Parker and them, yeah, no, they, they really worked on that thing. Crazy. So with all the risks that you've now talking about with Evad being the baby, where is its appetite currently now? Because it felt like last year we were very much in the action film space uh, because almost everything that I was kind of seeing in terms of new films are either very much action-y or very 
I don't use the word telenovela, but very homegrown dramas and your Friday night action movies. Is that where we currently still are or where we, where's the appetite for you guys currently feeling? I think definitely trying to to move away from that, but not alienating it too much uh, at the same time, because I think ETV, and then you, I think you mentioned it well with Friday night action night. I mean, that was ETV for Friday, you know, the, the content of action, all those action blockbusters, whether it be international or some local, you always gravitated towards it right but now i think the channel has okay tested it out okay they know that that's where the lifeblood is but then we have to explore more genres explore more ways to get more audiences coming out and coming towards evod and that means you know now we are looking at more kind of family orientated storylines we've got some comedy and action comedy because action is still kind of there as a base in a way and i I don't want to say base throughout all the content but especially for the movies action is there for e and we'd like to explore a lot more genres but i think for this kind of base going forward when you're going to see it peeking through to the content that's coming out now starting from i think from feb we've released some new some new releases on evod up until 2024 there's a lot of family there's a lot of rom-com there's a lot of tear jerkers and there's a lot of different cultural stories we've got a lot of Afrikaans coming out as well so we're trying to be more inclusive you know in the sense of understanding what people want they don't want all the same things at the same time we want to explore we're not going to be afraid to as well coming soon there's going to be a lot of shake-ups and I'll definitely keep you informed going forward you know things that you should look out for and you know think about when it comes to the content so now I want to know with all of this that's going on, what's getting you as Mark excited? What's both of you getting you excited as well as concerned about where the current landscape of African film and content is looking like? Yo, what's getting me excited is how, I mean, we're busy, man. The industry is alive, guys. And I think you see it with the international influence. I mean, we've got, we've had Netflix kind of putting in their footprint. We've got Amazon now, like close watching Netflix with baited eyes. For example, there's partnerships happening where Amazon is licensing, essentially licensing films that are commissioned by broadcasters now so that they can have a share into this kind of African or South African space. But they're obviously building their base too, which is great. I mean, I don't necessarily see it as competition. I see it as a business hub or an industry growing, and that can only be good. What makes me scared a little bit is do we, in all that, lose our essence as the continent of South Africa? In the essence, do our stories become diluted by international influence? Do our stories then feel like they're not hitting home? They're feeling too universal. When I say too universal, this is cross-continental, this is different countries, you know. So does that make the South African audience detach? I don't know, but it is a concern in a way in terms of now the DNA of South African content. You know, does it become watered down? Does it become better? I don't know. I think time will tell. So with your apprehensions of the dilutions, is there also a opportunity in your mind that the dilutions could also open to very much new discoveries since we are still very much at the cusp of understanding what it is that we're able to do with our stories and our type of filmmaking? Yo, man, I think at the end of the day, we're still living within a very conservative nation, right? And I think the content also informs that. Fine, we can cut deep, but then when we say we're cutting deep oh no we're showing a lot of violence or is it too much sex you know when i'm saying we're cutting deep we need to get into the country's issues you know whether it be racism 
whether it be economic issues that we're going through, that reflects on the content and how far we're willing to take it. That's being real. But I don't see a lot of broadcasters kind of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll do it or we will go there with you because, you know, it can get uncomfortable. And I think with other nations and other countries, they take it there, man. Like you can get really raw with some of the content, not to kind of increase shock value, but to just to be real and be honest about what happens because some of the, some of the content needs to be reflecting of what society is going through. So coming back to your question about that dilution and maybe there could be new discoveries with it. Yes, potentially. But then are the broadcasters, the streaming platforms brave enough to put it on there? That's why I said I know in an ideal world and I was like, and I even said, we're not in an ideal world. <laughs> exactly. We'd be putting it out there and see if it works or not, right? But I think the perception and the damage it could have caused, or I don't know, it's just maybe it's too much of a headache. I don't know, maybe. But I do believe the content is still there. And yes, we are only just scraping the top, you know. There's still so many layers to go down. But it's a lot of bravery and also it's up to the creatives the producers to make us believe as the channel that this is the story if you can sell us that ice and we're chilling in the eskimos of whatever alaska and we still want that ice of yours because it's got a little tinge of sweetness of whatever it is trust me man you're gonna be winning because at the end of the day it's also about you selling the story making me believe as obviously as the custodian so that i can fight for you and fight with you to take the story to the next level right but yeah yeah there's a lot of bravery. There's a lot of heads. The buck really doesn't just stop with us. Yeah, it's, it's a bigger chain, but we need the voices to start pushing. And I mean, I'm in those boardrooms when I'm sitting with some of my team members and we talk about content in general, right? Internationally, nationally, what's happening, what's new, what's hot. And first and foremost, the amount of variety people are watching and the taste buds of each person that kind of talks. It's fascinating. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, you, know, you, you look like this kind of person, but you watch this. And I see the audience in that. You know, some audience members, sometimes they don't know what they want until you give it to them. And if it's something that's going to be heart-wrenching and golfing and real, hey man, maybe they'll stick around and like, They'll, they'll journey with you, right? And you'll get those numbers that you want and everyone will be happy because there'll be money flowing. <laughs> so you brought up something in terms of about, um, in terms of being able to sell to the CEs as a custodian so that they can fight also on your behalf. How often in your position are you fighting and who and what are you fighting against when you're trying to take these bold decisions? I think it's the content. I mean, for me, it always will be Content is king, man. And the content speaks for itself. You can be a first timer and you can be a vet. But if the story is not storing, we can't move. So for me, it starts there, I would think. If the story, I feel you, you believe it, yes, with all your heart, and you've made me believe it with you, we can see how far we can go with it. At the end of the day, we must also remember that the story that you come in with the first time you pitch to us is probably not going to be the same story after you've gone into development. Because now, remember, we, yeah. we the concept itself, right, is the blueprint. There's still going to be so many meats. There's still going to be so many kind of muscles that need to be put on this thing. There's going to be a whole lot of opinions. But then at the end of the day, the core is there. It needs to stay there. What the crux of what the story is about needs to be there. And that is the selling point. If we deviate from that, you're going to lose everything. You need to always believe in the core of the story and you need to follow through. So now, since we've now spoken about ideals and also kind of realities, my next question I want you to answer in both ways in terms of where would you like to see African film going in the next 10 years? 
and also kind of outside of that idealism where you kind of feel it might be with maybe even more of a sobering outlook. Okay, 10 years is a lot, especially now after the pandemic, five years. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't see past two and a half years. If I'm being very honest, the five-year thing kind of actually got winded out of me. Like midway through the pandemic, even seeing past six months at some point, you're like, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, where would you like to see it go? And where do you, within your more sobering mind, feel it would be, let's say, yeah, three, four years from now? Content is going in Africa where the, the industry is at. I think it's in, a, it's in a very good space. And it's in a space of where it's on its growth, like trajectory is up. And I say that because there's activity, man. There's activity in the continent. There's international interest. With that comes monetary value as well, because now it's job creation. People are kind of busy. And we see it with when we as channel are wanting to uh, create a new idea. We're struggling to find writers. We're struggling to find actors. The top HOD crew members are, are busy. Everyone is just busy. So it's a good and a bad thing, right? But I say more good because it can only grow in leaps and bounds from there. And with time, I think three years from now, the guys who started off as DO, shadowing DOPs or focus pulling, they must be able to elevate. They must graduate. We need to kind of move guys through the ranks quicker. I think doing the same thing year in, year out, and not feeling the progression within that kind of department. You know, if you're within camera, you should be able to be DOP or given a chance to be second camera, you know, within time. And obviously with proven abilities, you know, we don't want to just put you out there just because we feel you can, but you are pushing in the passion, like Bobby Heen used to say, passion. There's passion. always passion with this guy he's here he wants to learn he wants to know you give those guys opportunities man because those are the people that are going to take you far those people are going to be dedicated in the job those are the people that are going to want to stay up with you whatever act till take that take when the person has been falling down they're uncomfortable those people are going to give you those opportunities and so i would think opening up the industry more is going to be crucial because yeah, these young cats are coming in with a lot of skill, man, and there's a lot of hunger. But fine, the the veterans in the game, they've always known what they're doing. But then let's let's help each other out, man. Like give these guys a chance to to show their skill because the pie is growing, and there's gonna be more to chow for everybody. That's where I see it going. And I hope that we can make a bigger impact when it comes to kind of international recognition, you know, like the BAFTAs and, you know, the, the Emmys, the, the Oscars. We There's always a mention. We're always being nominated for something as Africans. And slowly but surely we see it, you know, within the States, the Hollywoods, we, we see these guys working. And I think the African continent needs to keep what it's doing, keep the hunger going, keep telling these stories. I think we'll be in good hands. And then where would you like to see yourself now? So you've not spoken about like the African vision, but now Mark Madai Mugai. No, Mark Madai. My man, I need to be, I need to be part of the board somewhere, bro. Like I need to elevate myself. I need to sit in the DTI one day. I need to be there at the, the NFVF. I, I need to make those decisions. And I say that because I'm a person who has known how the industry has been almost 10 years now. It's eight years, two more years, then I'm in a decade, bro. Then I'm, then I'm speaking other things. We're no longer like the young people in the industry no more. Like it's, Jeez, give, give, it's me some, give me a flower <laughs> or a petal at least by now. Damn. I want to see myself in those kind of decision-making roles in the future. And I think before that, I'd love to work internationally as well. I mean, I'd love to 
work for either a well-known broadcaster, a small broadcaster internationally, but I'd love to get my chops in international and how content operates there and how they perceive our content from from, from the other side, you know, because we are always consuming international. I mean, it's like every single other day, man, I'm on international stuff, but why? I want to know. I want to be there. I want to see how, how they cook it as well. So you very much still want to stay on the more programming and... I don't say non-filmmakery, but the industry that supports the industry sector of Correct. the industry. I need a better way of explaining that. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, you got it. So kind of moving through those ranks from the NFVF, which is more of a really great support structure in terms of enabling the industry, specifically the independent industry, to then now also now the programming and the moving of African content, and not just African content, but the moving of programming from a terrestrial level internationally. I would like to see it for Mark Madai Magai, but I think in rapping, if there are people who have now, because, you know, we don't really talk to CEs a lot. I feel like we need to be opening these types of conversations more. But if anyone is kind of now listening to this conversation and they're being opened to the world of CE or of programming, and they now wanted to better understand how they can position themselves better to work within that space, what type of advice would you kind of be giving them in terms of where their headspace needs to be or what it is they need to be doing to then start positioning themselves more so within this space as opposed to not just seeing options of being a filmmaker in terms of like a director or a producer or a cameraman etc 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 wow advice to you guys now yo bro here comes let's yo Okay, talk to Mark, 2015 Mark. Actually, not even 2014 Mark. You're talking to 2014 Mark. Yo, you in shit, bro. (laughs) No, no, real talk. No, I'd say listen. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's real talk. It's real talk. No, but explain so that people know, because this is is about the realities. We're, We're very optimistic, but at the same time, we are really trying to understand the space that we're in. So what is festering this emotion that no, you man, feel? Listen, the, the industry at the same time is rough. I mean, it's beautiful what we create, but it's like any other organization, right? There will be people that you deal with who are very difficult. There are people who undermine you. There will be people who don't want to listen to your opinions. I think at the end of the day, if you believe strong enough in your opinion, don't falter because you need to have leather skin in this industry and at the end of the day i think this line was used quite a lot even on set and even where i am right now where i'm clashing with my colleagues you will always clash you guys are creatives it need not be personal and when it gets personal then that's when you need to reassess yourself because you always will be butting heads with people i mean the industry is real especially the pressures that for example the the tvrs that the broadcaster needs to hit the payments that need to come on time for crew because it's also livelihoods, right? So it really boils down to the belief, the passion that you have for what you what you want to do. I mean, don't, don't falter, man. You, you will always will be pulled in one direction, but maybe that direction is what you need to be pulled in and able to know where you're going to go at the end of the day for yourself personally. So become a sponge. Listen, always, always, this is a personal one. Always, always be kind. Be nice to people, but don't let them take advantage 
advantage of you. I'm telling you, being kind in this industry will take you somewhere. You will be known as the person that you're good to work with, even though you have disagreements and you may fight with people. But at the end of the day, the job is done. That was always will be key. If you can't deliver that episode, if that episode can't air, we're all in trouble. We're all going to lose our jobs. We're going to, heads are going to roll. We don't want that. So if you have people like that in your side or, or you a person like that, trust me, you're going to go somewhere in this industry. Hey, those are words of steel and they came from a real place. That's what I was like, you must be honest because we know our industry. Our industry is, yeah, as you put it, it's not kind. It will overwhelm you all the time. And then you need to, within that overwhelmingness, find your moments of joy. And if you're in a place of privilege, really still find ways of nurturing that passion and not killing it so that you can keep going and going on to the next thing and learning better from that so that you know how to move on to the next thing. It's a continuous, ever-changing, growing process. But I just wanted to say thank you for this conversation. This has been... Quite a revelation. I think it's been a very fun conversation to have to really talk about the business end of content that I don't think we really ever really like sit down and explore. And I feel like there's so much more to explore even on this conversation because I feel like even with TVRs and how those work, this was very much a base level to kind of get people to understand the world that we live in. But thank you for being so forthcoming and for coming onto this space, sharing your stories and being the charismatic and very honest person that you are and how you carry yourself. I really appreciate your time and your candor and the willingness and just, yeah, the information that you brought to the space and you. Oh man, I'm humbled. I'm humbled, Yolezo. And like I said, man, I'm so proud of you. Keep it up, my brother. I am watching from the sidelines. The trajectory is there, my bro. So thank you so much. I hope your viewership grows continuously, leaps and bounds, and I'll be more than happy to return anytime soon, man. Let me know. Cheers, brother.